I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Roland Stull. Welcome, Roland. Uh, Now, you are an atmospheric scientist. Um, What is an atmospheric scientist? An atmospheric scientist is a person who studies the atmosphere, studies the weather. So um, we're also known as meteorologists, or people just call me the weather guy. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, And you're, you're, um, well, you've been teaching it for quite a while, right? Um, Yep, I have taught for many years. Um, I've started off as an adjunct professor for a couple of years at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And then I was a professor for 16 years at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. And then from there, I came to UBC, whereas I've been a professor now for about 16 years, no, sorry, for about 26 years. Amazing. And uh, where did you go to school? I went to school at the University of Delaware for a couple of years, majoring in chemical engineering. And then I transferred to the University of Washington in Seattle, where I finished my chemical engineering degree and stayed there for my PhD in in atmospheric science. Oh, wow. That's quite the diverse uh, academic background. They fit together very well, partly because in engineering, in chemical engineering in particular, we are studying um, thermodynamics and fluid dynamics. And we study the same things in the atmosphere. In the case of the atmosphere, the fluid is the air. Interesting. And what uh, what got you into atmospheric sciences, other than the overlap with what you were already studying? I think I became interested as a kid. My parents tell me various anecdotes. Um, for example, one time there was a hurricane that went through the town where I lived. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and there was a hurricane that went through. And I remember being in the kitchen, looking out the kitchen window as a little kid, seeing all these trees blow down. And I, I was so excited. I wanted to get out and climb the trees because they were easier now that the um, they were at an angle instead of straight up. But uh, for some reason, my mom didn't let me go outside during the hurricane. I think she thought I might blow away. And other times there were lots of thunderstorms that I'd go out in the backyard with my umbrella up and watch the thunder and the lightning. I guess those are the things that inspired me. So even as a kid, I had a little weather station set up and I enjoyed that. Wonderful. Oh, I love that you had a little weather station in your backyard. (laughs) Also, as a kid, I got into flying bottle airplanes. And that also depends a bit on the weather. Turned around later on in life, I got my real pilot's license and became a flight instructor. Oh, So I have a a flight instructor license for single engine, multi-engine and instrument instruction in the States. And um, yeah, I've been, I've done a lot of flying. So that I really um, care about the weather because if I screw up my weather analysis looking out the window of the aircraft, I could easily die. Absolutely. Do you still get up and fly? Um, Not so much anymore, no. Um, About five or six years ago, my younger brother died in a plane crash, and so I lost my motivation. Yeah, that would would have an impact, certainly. Okay, so now now I'm curious. You mentioned you have a really uh, 
diverse academic background, um, I found that a lot of careers tend to be a bit circuitous. Um, people often face setbacks or change uh, mid-direction. It sounds like you made a, a significant change at one point. What prompted those changes? Um, right. So I knew as a kid, I always wanted to be a, a meteorologist. And uh, the high school I went to in Baltimore was called Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, which is a pretty fancy name for a high school. But they had an engineering um, program that um, if I succeeded in it, it allowed me advanced placement at university. Not all universities offered that advanced placement, but the University of Delaware was one of them. And so I actually started my university schooling as a sophomore, as a second year student. Um, so I skipped the whole, whole first year. So I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in three years. At the university that offered this advanced placement, the University of Delaware, they did not have any meteorology program. So I said, well, gee, what can I study that's sort of close? And um, I've always been handy with building things and designing things. And my father was an electronics engineer, so I had engineering in the blood, I guess. So I decided to do the chemical engineering at um, Delaware as a stepping stone to atmospheric science degree. So then um, after getting my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, I, I was able to switch then into my desired field, atmospheric science at the University of Washington and majored in that. Well, that was, that was many years ago, back during the Vietnam War, okay? Mm -hmm. And there was a draft happening. And so I um, enlisted in the US Air Force. They allowed me to stay on for graduate school at the University of Washington, but they had a short timeline. So I had to finish my PhD in four years. So I had a very short university education, three years of a bachelor's and four years to PhD. And then I was out in the world. Um, but what I was out into was the US Air Force where I served for four years in Omaha. I was a captain in the Air Force. And I worked as a weather officer um, in the basement of a room with no windows, which for a weather guy is pretty bad, not being able to see the weather. But I worked at a place where they um, ran big computers to make numerical weather forecasts for the whole world for all of the Air Force operations. Um, little did I know at the time that I would actually get back into that field, talking about the circuitous paths here. So after the Air Force, I started off at the University of um, Wisconsin and um, worked up through the ranks to full professor there. My field of study was atmospheric boundary layers and turbulence. So the boundary layer is the bottom one or two kilometers of the atmosphere. It's the part where you live, it's the part where I live, part where most people live, and it's usually turbulent. And the variations that we feel in the atmospheric boundary layer, it gets warmer during the day, cooler at night, you know, it gets windy during the afternoon and calm by morning, those sorts of things. That doesn't happen in the rest of the atmosphere, but most people don't realize that. It only happens in the bottom one or two kilometers, called the boundary layer, because it's strongly influenced by the Earth's surface. So um, that was my field of study. And I ended up writing a textbook on it called Introduction to Boundary Layer Meteorology. But then my wife, who I'd met when I was a graduate student, uh, was keen to move back to the Seattle area where I'd gone to school. There weren't any jobs back there at the time, but there was an opening at UBC. 
And um, after a bit of negotiation, I was able to get hired as a full professor. I started right off as a full professor at UBC because um, I was already a full professor at Wisconsin. And so I came to UBC, which has a strong atmospheric science program that's interdisciplinary. And, and there were a lot of boundary layer experts here. So it was nice to strengthen the boundary layer expertise here, but we ended up tripping over each other. And so I said, well, gee, what can I do? What needs to be done in the way of weather research? Well, I said, gee, all the forecasts seem pretty awful. They, they, they're never right. They're, they're always wrong. Maybe I should see what I can do to improve weather forecast skill. So again, talk about a circuitous path. I completely changed my research direction into numerical weather prediction, which uses big computers to forecast the weather. And that's what's been my focus ever since at UBC. So sorry for the long-winded answer. No, no, it was fascinating. And um, I have to say, one of the things that I, I love listening to your uh, weather uh, predictions and weather reports is how you take something that seems, um, you know, really dry, like numerical uh, models, but you turn it into an art form by pointing out the strengths and weaknesses of various models. And it's, it is really um, like watching an artist at work. <laughs> well, it is fun. Uh, yeah, with computer models of the weather, no single model is always right. They're mm -hmm. all slightly wrong. But if you run many different models, run an ensemble of different weather models, then it turns out you can average them together and that gives the best forecast. I guess that's your chemistry background coming out. You mix and match a little bit. <laughs> yep, perhaps. Yep. This is called <laughs> ensemble forecasting. And we use it a lot for forecasting for our, our clean energy clients. Yeah, you do some really uh, cool work with with uh, clean energy clients. Um, yeah, we do. We um, do a lot of work for BC Hydro. Um, many people, well, they know obviously about the hydroelectric reservoirs and the electric generation, mm -hmm. but they maybe don't know that BC Hydro is required to purchase energy produced by wind farms. Uh, the wind farms in BC are run by private companies. But nonetheless, BC Hydro, as a crown corporation, is, is forced to buy the wind farm energy. And they're, they're um, are encouraged to buy um, energy from other private producers, such as run of river um, production hmm. and solar farms, solar energy production. So BC Hydro is very interest, interested in all aspects of clean energy, hydropower, wind power, solar power. My working with them got me so interested in this clean energy topic that just um, last year we created a new course called uh, Atmospheric Science 313, Renewable Energy Meteorology. And I've heard great things about this new course. <laughs> it sounds very exciting. It was fun. I learned a lot uh, creating this course. Now I'm curious. Um, one of the things that I've heard from a bunch of our researchers is that when they go out into the field, uh, some really bizarre things can happen. And I'm sure with uh, your um, impressive history in, uh, in this field of atmospheric sciences, you must have some crazy field stories. Uh, do you have any you'd care to share? Oh, yes, I do. Um, okay, well, you have to remember long, long ago in a land far, far away when I was a grad student, um, grad students were more expendable than they are now. <laughs> So um, so my thesis advisor sent me on many different field adventures. I've done field work in Western Africa and Senegal. I've done field work in Puerto Rico. Um, I was on a, a research flight across the Atlantic dropping drop signs 
where we landed in the Caribbean. That was nice. So you, you were dropping what? Um, drop songs. These are weather instruments that are released from the aircraft and they, they slowly come down by parachute and make measurements of the atmosphere on the way down. It's sort of the opposite of a weather balloon, which carries a package up when it measures as things go up. So I've, most of my field research was involved with um, air, airborne measurements of, of the atmosphere. And that includes um, flying motor gliders in Germany and being on um, larger aircraft over France, uh, lots of field programs over um, the United States prairies. But talking about adventures, um, on one flight um, south of Florida over the, the ocean, my job was to go on a small transport aircraft uh, a transport aircraft that has the tail gate that lowers down so you can drive Jeeps and stuff into it, you know. What they did is they took off and then in flight, they lowered the tailgate to be horizontal. And I was required to um, climb out on the tailgate, lay on my stomach in the prone position. They gave me a shotgun where the shotgun shells were full of little thin fibers of reflective material, like threads. They, they look like the grandmother's hair, gray metallicized plastic threads that were in these shotgun shells. And I was supposed to shoot these shells out the back of the airplane where they would disperse in the atmosphere. And then weather radar on the ground would track this chaff, which is what it's called, to track the turbulent motions in the atmosphere. So here I was in the aircraft, um, the tailgate was lowered, we're flying along, you know, at 100 meters per second or a couple hundred kilometers per hour. And I had no seatbelt. I was not strapped in. Both my hands were holding the shotgun, which I'd never fired a gun before. This was before I was in the Air Force. And we're flying along and we hit some turbulence. And I lifted off of the tailgate and it came down a little bit further to the edge of the tailgate. So I almost fell out of the airplane. In fact, at the time, I didn't know whether I was supposed to hang on to the shotgun or whether I was supposed to hold on to the airplane to keep from falling off. No one told me anything. So like I said, that was back in the days where grad students were more expendable. Sounds like James Bond. <laughs> so it, it was fun. It was, it was scary. But as you might guess, since I'm a pilot, I'm not too afraid of heights. But we've had other interesting, fun times in doing the boundary layer measurements over the, um, the United States prairie provinces. We'd be in a twin engine turbo um, craft airplane, you know, designed as a business aircraft, but but re-instrumented for making um, turbulence measurements. Well, to make these measurements, we had to fly very low. And we were flying so low along the prairies, the, the farm fields of Kansas and Oklahoma, that we'd have to climb to get over power poles and electric power lines. So that was interesting. And then on a different experiment, um, I had some grad students out on a farm field in Wisconsin and we were trying to measure the atmospheric boundary layer with a, a, it's called a tethered balloon. It's an aerodynamic shaped balloon filled with helium. It's on a tether made of Kevlar and there's an electric winch to raise and lower the balloon in the atmosphere. And then there's a weather instrument hanging from the balloon. So we can go to a different height, make measurements there for a while, raise it up, make measurements. So we went out in the early morning in this farm field, the winds were calm, it was perfect for making these measurements. So I got everything all set up and um, we had some helium tanks um, out there. So we 
we had the helium tanks sort of strapped together, laying on the ground, sort of like a raft with the, um, the electric winch um, strapped down to these heavy helium tanks. And so I left one of my grad students um, there to, to manage the winch and to raise and lower the balloon. And then the other grad student and I went back to a van where we had our instruments to look at the, the radio transmissions from the instrument. And so we start the experiment, the balloon starts going up. I'm in the van looking at the um, sensors and all of a sudden I hear the screaming kind of coming out from the farm field. And I look out and the grad student who was managing the raising, lowering the balloons, um, she realized that the balloon got into really fast moving air and started to drag the whole raft of, of helium tanks and, and winch along the farm field over the, the farrows and over the ruts and everything. And she didn't know what to do. So she jumped on the raft to try to hold it down. And she was being pulled along the farm field by the strong winds pulling on this balloon there. Uh, anyway, had to run out and, and try to lower the balloon, which did not want to get lowered because the winds were so strong. The balloon was just doing loops in the sky. It made so many sharp turns that the weather instrument package went flying off into some other forest somewhere. We never did find it. I had to we had to pay the person I borrowed the balloon from and buy him a new instrument package. That was embarrassing. Anyway, lots of adventures out in the field. That sounds really crazy and really exciting. <laughs> Not at all the, the image that we get when we think of atmospheric science. It's uh, quite the adventurous <laughs> field. I'm curious, what's your favorite part about your work? Um, I love the combination of teaching and research. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm not a professor by accident. I'm so motivated by the students, so um, enthused to teach. And they always come up with good questions that then lead to good research ideas. And so I've been successful with the research and the teaching. So I just, I just love being a professor. Well, I can tell it's reciprocated. I hear your students talking about you with always glowing, uh, glowing tones. Don't believe them. <laughs> um, now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, what's the uh, worst or the most challenging part about your work? Well, you know, challenging, I wouldn't call it the worst, but I have a big team of students and it requires a lot of grant money. So I spend a lot of time writing grant proposals. It's mm. somewhat boring and it's required though to keep the team going. You know, I guess obviously during COVID it was um, difficult to re-aim all the courses to be online. And so we've had some, some massive difficulties with the online exams and some of our larger mm. courses. So that's been quite a challenge. It's, you know, we have this, this course that we poured our, our heart and soul and creation and we love the course and then to have this final exam electronics screw up on us through no fault of our own. That was that was sad. That was disappointing. Yeah, fine technology works just until you need it, and then it it waits until you need it <laughs> to fail. <laughs> um, I'm curious. Uh, do you identify yourself as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's affected your uh, studies or, or your career? Um, no. Pretty simple. <laughs> In a broader sense, though, do you feel like atmospheric science is a very welcoming field, or do you feel like it's a little more insular? Welcoming to whom? Uh, outsiders or newcomers. Oh, I go out of my way to welcome newcomers. Where I was a professor before at Wisconsin, there was a big department, all of them atmospheric scientists. So the department was as large as the Earth, Ocean, Atmospheric Sciences Department here at, at UBC, only was wow. all atmospheric science and oceanographers. Also, when I went to school in Washington, it was a big department. So here at, at, at UBC, it's a smaller program. And um, so it's very interdisciplinary. It's fun. We work with um, 
colleagues in geography and soil science and engineering and chemistry and physics and math who all um, contribute to the atmospheric science program. And so it, we work so well together. I mean, we're borrowing weather instruments from the soil science guy. Um, we're, we help um, the geographers put their instruments on our rooftop to calibrate their instruments. We've taken our, our weather instruments that we use to study forest fire weather and taken that over to the chemistry lab to, um, you know, to get them calibrated. So, you know, very nice interaction among all the professors and, and grad students. Again, since it's such a small community, I just, I try to encourage people to become atmospheric scientists. You know, when I find undergraduates in my first year classes who are keen about the weather, I, I invite them to work for me for the summer. So I usually have a team of four undergrad students working for me every summer. So I can try to keep their enthusiasm in the weather and and encourage them to um, to stay in the field. I can see your uh, your engineering background coming through there, where you um, you make do and you you find ways to adapt. You know, like you said, uh, atmospheric science tools to geology and and vice versa. <laughs> and you do make uh, huge efforts to make everyone feel welcome, and that's always appreciated. I try. Yeah. Uh, speaking of making things uh, work uh, in less than ideal circumstances, uh, I'm curious how COVID has affected your work and if you've been able to um, uh, continue your work or if anything's been disrupted. We were lucky in that most of our work is numerical weather prediction, meaning we're sitting in front of our computer terminals at the office talking to bigger computers elsewhere around the world to run our numerical weather forecasts. So when COVID happened, we just took our workstations home. We're still sitting in front of terminals, um, talking to computers, bigger computers across the country. So most of my research team were able to just transition easily right away. Mm -hmm. um, the exception was the field work. Now I mentioned before that um, part of my research is studying forest fire weather and how forest fire smoke um, disperses and it might affect the health of, of towns downwind of forest fires. So we, we do participate in um, forest fire research where they are, they do experimental burns of the forest in Northern Alberta and Northwest Territories. And we participate in those. A lot of fun, except during COVID, um, of course they canceled all the burns last year. And then this year um, we were planning to go on experimental burn this month in May but it was gonna be in Northern Alberta. And as you probably heard on the news, Alberta has some of the worst um, COVID um, cases right now. So it was canceled again. But luckily those grad students who are studying forest fires, they all can also do computer modeling. So they can keep doing that until, until the field research opens up again. And do they ever uh, take data from some of those out of control wildfires too? Uh, we have not yet. One of the reasons the out of control ones are usually being actively fought and we don't want to get in the way of, you know, all the, the firefighters and the aircraft that are flying and so forth. With the experimental burns, you know, not only are there the scientists out there during the burn and making the measurements, but there are also a whole firefighting crew out there just in case to help um, suppress the fire in case it escapes. And so we, you know, these burns are done only when they give the go ahead, only when they give the approval. And so there's a very narrow range of conditions where um, it's safe enough to have an experimental burn, and yet it's not too wet that nothing burns. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a fine balancing act. 
And it's also great to know that for anyone who's thinking of going into atmospheric sciences, there is a lot of diversity in the um, experience that you can have. You can either uh, work from a computer if that's your thing, or you can be falling out of the back of an airplane if... Uh... <laughs> Hopefully not falling out of the back of an airplane. But you bring up, you know, most people's perceptions of meteorologists are what they see on the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's sort of embarrassing. One of my neighbors had a real little kid. And when the little kid learned that I was a meteorologist, he thought for a while. And then he asked me, what channel? Which I'm not a TV meteorologist. But, um, you know, I guess in a good, a good aspect of meteorology is that it is presented to the public every day on the news in one way or the other. The public is very aware of it. A disadvantage is, is that the public doesn't know how much math and computers and physics is involved to be a meteorologist. So that's one of the, the differences is that, you know, for any students who'd like to be a meteorologist, this is a good way to apply your, your physics knowledge to something useful. Yeah, now that you mention it, um, meteorology is probably the most um, presented science to the public. And yet it's because it is pre- presented so often, we often forget that it that it's science. <laughs> And in, in, in fact, as you know, in, in the big TV networks, presentation is 90% of the effort there, you know, how it looks, how they come across the graphics and everything. But luckily, in, in big markets like Vancouver, most of the on-air, meteor, um, on-air broadcast meteorologists do have degrees in meteorology. And some work for Environment Canada, some came with meteorology degrees from other universities. Whereas in some of the smaller markets, you never know who's going to be presenting the weather. In one place where I lived, the, the evening weather was a puppet show with little sock handheld puppets. That was so disappointing. I don't know. I kind of like the idea of having Muppet weather. Yeah. Now, um, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this thinking that they may want to follow in your footsteps. Uh, so I'm curious, what uh, background uh, or courses or experience uh, would you recommend for anyone who wants to become a meteorologist? Okay, for most meteorology degrees, you need to have strengths in um, mathematics through beginning calculus, through um, physics, and um, fairly good computer programming skills. So, you know, that's the, usually the, the courses, the first year courses that students want to take, that you should take those kinds of courses. But also, you know, take courses in, in weather that are fun. You know, we have this other first year course, weather for sailing, flying, and snow sports. That's usually very popular. And yeah, that's a good way to keep yourself motivated in the weather. Yeah, so essentially atmospheric science is, is an application of physics, dynamics, and thermodynamics um, to the atmosphere. And for yourself, uh, what do you consider to be your most important course that you took uh, when you were in school? The most important course that I took, wow. You realize that was a long time ago. Oh, I know. Even I couldn't answer that question, but, or one or two courses. One of the early courses that I took was on, on the atmospheric boundary layer and turbulence. And I realized how little was known about the subject and how complicated it was. And I figured this is a topic where I could maybe make a contribution. So that's what sort of steered me into the direction of, of, atmospheric boundary layers and turbulence when I was younger. I don't know. I was too busy trying to finish my degrees in the short period of time. I, I pretty much enjoyed all the, the math and engineering courses that I, that I took and science courses. Your, your education was a bit of a sprint, um, it sounds like. 
uh, courses can be inspiring, but did you have any any people who you found inspiring uh, or who helped you through your degree program? Um, well, I'm sort of an introvert. So I actually did most of my graduate work at home in my apartment and would just come in to see my major professor maybe like once every three months or so. And he'd see the work that I'd done and say, well, why don't you go try this? And then I'd go off for another three months. I'd learn, you know, do literature search, learn a whole new field, come back. He'd look at it and say, okay, that's good. Why don't you try this direction? And so, um, yeah, I think it's, since I'm an introvert, I did a lot of the work alone, but I do have to thank my major professor. His name was Joost Bussinger. He, he gave me the flexibility to work alone and, and to be creative. You know, people have different personalities from, from very extrovert and outgoing to very introvert. And I'm a hard, hardcore introvert. So, you know, working quietly at home, that's, that suits me just fine. Uh, now, you mentioned that you do have a bunch of um, grad students. I'm always curious, what does a professor look for uh, when they're choosing their grad students? Are there any qualities or skills that you think are useful? Besides high grades, maybe, you know, obviously a student needs to have high grades, but I do look for other things. I look for students that have um, other outside activities, um, like involved in sports. Um, some of my grad students were competitive figure skaters. Another one is a, is a world-class competitive um, kayaker. Um, I had a varsity football player on my um, grad student. And of course, I have a lot of avid skiers and snowboarders. Um, you can't help but do that for people that come to Vancouver. Um, I also look for outside activities. Are this the kind of people, are the grad students the kind of people that um, seem, I'm trying to figure the right word, you know, sort of um, caring um, about other people trying to do well. So, you know, camp counselors, you know, if they had a, a job as a camp counselor or, you know, interacting with other students, um, volunteering in, in various organizations. So the main things I look for are high grades and very strong letters of recommendation, but they don't need to have a degree in atmospheric science or meteorology. They can come in with a degree in engineering or mathematics or physics, you know, any of those STEM types of backgrounds, science, technology, engineering, and math are very pro appropriate for coming into grad school. And it sounds like you've got um, a lot of fodder for your weather for sailing, snowboarding, and <laughs> yes. Yeah, I had a team of people help create the course and, and avid skiers, you know, I wrote the, the flying parts and so I'm a flight instructor. And then I, uh, one of my grad students helped to write the snow part. She did her dissertation at Whistler helping to study the snow to enable the Canadian teams to win more medals. So for, for her, I had to pay for a season pass at Whistler so she could do her research. I had to pay for a condo for her at Whistler and she would um, snowboard to work every day uh, to her research station that she had on the mountains where she was studying the snow. So um, yeah, a lot of fun things you can do in the field of weather. I think you just um, set a whole new generation of atmospheric scientists alight. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, um, I mean, grad students are just starting their careers. Uh, looking toward the, um, the end of your career, uh, what would you like to be the legacy when you retire in many, many years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, still quite a few more years before that happens, but um, I guess, one aspect is I'm very proud of all of the students who 
who learned from me and completed various degrees with me. They're out in the world, all around the world doing great things, which I am proud of. But I'm also very proud of the textbooks that I wrote. I wrote the two single author textbooks. I told you one of them already, which was an introduction to boundary layer meteorology. That was a graduate level book. That came out in 1988 and it's still in print, which is pretty good for a technical wow. level book full of equations. But I'm also proud of a book that I finished writing um, just uh, about five years ago now called Practical Meteorology, an Algebra-Based Survey of Atmospheric Science. The reason why I'm proud of that is it's available for free for everyone worldwide. It's, I put it on the internet for free and it's been adopted. It's, been, it's used like in 120 some countries around the world with like over 40,000 downloads of the book. It's been adopted by many universities. So it was fun to write that book because I learned a lot and I, I'm just very pleased that other people around the world are able to use that. So that's, that's one of the things I'm proud of. Writing a textbook on its own is um, such an amazing feat uh, and being the, the sole author, but then to put it online for free is just so noble. And um, I think really speaks uh, well of your character. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased. In fact, they're translating into Spanish now. A group in South America is translating into Spanish. My other book, the Boundary Layer book, um, that was translated into Chinese with all the Chinese glyphs. Um, that was amazing. So a lot of people seem to, to use my books. It must be very um, disconcerting or, or jarring to see your own work um, in such a different language. Oh, um, no, it's not disappointing. You know, meteorology is a very international field. And I'm just pleased that other folks around the world can 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 use it. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean disappointing. Just, um, yeah, it's, it's such a jolt to the system. Oh, no, it's not a jolt. It's good. <laughs> I encourage it. Uh, now, one thing I've noticed um, with all fields, um, but especially with atmospheric science, is that uh, the field that we enter, or the world is changing so quickly that the field that one person enters is often very, very different and a completely different field uh, by the time they uh, retire. So especially for the young people listening right now, the field that uh, you're talking about may not exist by the time they graduate or may be completely different. So what advice would you have to them uh, to anticipate some of those changes and be prepared for them? Right. Um, I think when I look ahead, I see one of the big societal problems relates to overpopulation. Now, we, we see symptoms of the overpopulation in climate change, and many people learn about climate change. But I think there are other symptoms that are actually more important. The energy shortage, the the uh, clean air and clean water shortage, the food shortages, um, shortage in living space. Um, all of those are big issues, many of which are affected by the weather. And so I'm you know, trying to picture ahead 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, already we're, we've used up the easy oil reserves. We're now into fracking, you know, cracking the earth open to, to get more oil. And eventually we're going to run out. So we'll need to rely more on renewable energy like wind and hydro and solar, which relates to meteorology. Um, so that'll become more important. As there's more and more people, a byproduct is more pollution of one sort or another, including air pollution. And forest fires, um, you know, natural disasters affecting the weather will be more impactful. More people will be affected on the highways by landslides and avalanches. More people will suffer from smoke from forest fires. 
there'll be more flooding. Look in Vancouver. There's more and more com communities now that are being built closer to the Fraser River, for example, in a floodplain. So as the population is expanding, people are building houses in places where they perhaps shouldn't, where there's a greater threat of a natural disaster like flooding or, or landslides. So, you know, those are what I think people should look for um, in the future. Um, if you're going to enter a field in, in atmospheric science or meteorology, where will be the societal need and how can you help as a meteorologist. It sounds like you're already preparing your students for the, those changes by uh, creating this new um, renewable energy course. Um, yeah, and that's really exciting. And it's funny because we often treat uh, renewable energy as this kind of quaint uh, hobby, but you know, the real power uh, is from traditional sources. But um, even in the last five to 10 years, we've seen renewable energy being treated far more seriously. Well, luckily in British Columbia, renewable energy has always been the main source of energy. Mm -hmm. Not so in other provinces in Canada and elsewhere in North America, but we're lucky in BC to have so many mountains and rivers uh, where we can make hydroelectric reservoirs. It gives us a, a clean energy source that um, we're just so um, lucky to have here, mm -hmm. and, which will help us then when it comes to automobiles and, and electric cars and so forth. And oh, you also mentioned that there are some wind plants and solar plants in this province. Roughly how much of our energy would you estimate comes from those sources? I'd have to look it up and get back to you on that. You know, I, I think, you know, like 90, more than 90% is hydropower. So so probably, you know, less than 10% is, is wind power. And a, a much smaller percentage at the moment is solar power in, in British Columbia. But elsewhere in Canada, where it's not so cloudy, uh, a lot more solar power, a lot of wind power in the um, prairie provinces, as, as, as you know, as they say, um, you know, in the prairies, the only thing that stops the wind is a barbed wire fence. A lot of wind turbines there, a lot of wind power. Well, Roland, it's been a delight to get to know you this morning. Um, thank you so much. Before I let you go, though, is there anything you'd like to share? Well, I've really enjoyed working with the Pacific Museum of the Earth. I'm glad you can keep things going during COVID, and I, I wish you the best. I hope to see the museum expand. Absolutely. And thanks always for your support and, and sharing everything. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.